You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Amber Byland, VP of Sales Strategy at City Capital Holdings. With 15 years of experience working in the CPG industry, first at General Mills and Danone, then at a dozen cousins, Amber is now a member of City's diligence and strategy team. Amber was recognized with the 2020 Danone National Sales Award for Outstanding Leadership and is passionate about challenging the status quo. Welcome, Amber. Thank you. Really excited to be here. I am so excited you're here. I think um, you have a very unique role and I'm excited to hear sort of everything that you've done and learned and pack it all into, you know, 50 minutes of amazing conversation. So we are kicking the year off with a great interview. So I'm super excited. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I got to say, you have a salesperson on the line, so I will do my best to keep my answers as concise as I can. But you know, you know, we like to chat. So I mean, that's what I'm hoping. It won't be a fun interview if you're just like, yes, <laughs> sales. Um, so you have had a variety of different roles along your sales career path. I definitely, you know, I feel like we have a lot of, um, you know, marketing and a lot of founders, it's, it's hard for me to find the right sales folks to come on, which is partly why I'm so excited you're here. Um, because you've just been in different roles along the way. And I think you understand the ecosystem very well. But um, your most recent move was that you sort of um, moved out of being on a sales team at either a big company or an emerging brand and moved over to a, a fund. Um, so tell me about that. What brought you there? Tell me about, you know, the, the role. And, um, you know, I think people are excited to hear about it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting journey. So even before this opportunity, I've always tried from the very beginning to really be thoughtful about the career moves that I make. Um, maybe didn't have the wisdom to think through all of that at the beginning, but I've been super fortunate to meet people and, and form relationships with folks along the way who give me really good advice, whether that be from a truth telling standpoint or just those that can kind of see what potential they have in store for me mm-hmm. and in turn can give me good advice to help me really achieve my potential, both that I want to get as well as what they you know see as an opportunity for me. And so from the very beginning, of my career when I started with General Mills, I was working on the Walmart account 
and you know got a lot of uh, category management foundational experiences there as well as some initial kind of sales planning experience and I'll preface by saying like my entire career has been spent in sales, but mm-hmm. it's also a very, a little bit unique uh, of, a, of a path there. Um, and so, you know, going back to some of that advice that I got, the first thing that someone told me is to really think about the roles that I'm taking and ensure that they're, they're challenging mm-hmm. rather than the easy path. And, you know, it, it, it's really easy not to, to belabor that, to, but to stay in your comfort zone. And what right. I've always found is like, again, not to be cliche, but you don't really grow in that space. And mm-hmm. I've always been taught from the very beginning by like my grandmother and those that raised me that you really want to continue to push yourself to maximize your potential. And so yeah. I took that in stride, took on a variety of different roles along the way, and coincidentally met my husband along that same path, oh. uh, taking a role <laughs> yeah, in a place that I didn't know a soul and joined a, a couple of uh, a soccer team and met him there. But um, you know, along that path, <laughs> I did category management, I did headquarter calling roles, I did planning roles, and this is all again with, with General Mills. Right. And um, you know, it was the first time that I really started to push the limits of what I, again, thought that I could achieve, either from going from a small, a large customer, you know, the biggest customer to a regional customer team to supporting some of the smallest customers, whether that be distributors or retailers in, in the entire country. And from there, uh, you know, I, I saw this opportunity that presented what this opportunity presented itself to me to join White Wave, which at the time, I didn't even know what that was, but I knew I liked the brands and right. decided to take that leap of faith and join a team that was, again, a little more scrappy because they were a little less resourced, but it wasn't at that point in my career, a point that I would have wanted to go to a startup. And right. Not scrappy like we're scrappy. Yeah. No, not not there <laughs> yet. It's but... like when people say, oh, emerging brands, like, you know, 50 million in sales. I'm like, um, I think like early emerging or baby emerging. Right. Yeah. Right. Like okay. keeping it real, like my business is still $30 million. So it wasn't right. any, anything small, right. but it was a lot smaller than what I was used to. Right. Um, and that gave me my first taste in that less resource scrappy mm-hmm. environment. And honestly, I loved it. And so when the known came around, you know, from an acquisition standpoint, I had to ask myself for the first time, is this a place that I want to stay? It's not necessarily where I signed up to be, but, you know, through uh, the early workings and learnings from that team, I recognized I could still maintain that same spirit of what I was doing. Um, And which from there, it led me to opportunities to manage eventually the trade team for Horizon Organic, which Mm. again, deeper into the natural product space that led down the line to managing an even bigger, but an even bigger business around our coffee products division. Which, at that point, it was a billion-dollar business that I was helping support. Which is wow. just crazy if you think when you think about it. But yeah. honestly, it's just still you know numbers, dollars, and cents, and percentages yep. matter. And while those percentages turn out to be bigger numbers, straight yeah. numbers, it's still, you still have to make the best decision for the budgets that you have mm-hmm. and make choices around how you want to support to get your strategy done. And so, um, I would say those experiences are really, really what got me down into understanding more of the retailer and channel landscape than what I'd ever, and what one individual could ever experience up until that point, because you only got so much time and you can't do every single role that there is, right. but you can, in that type of a role, you can support 
all of the different channels out there. And um, I was grateful that my role afforded me the ability to also walk, work cross-functionally as the voice of sales at a cross-functional table with, you know, it might be a, a supply chain person, it might be a finance person, a marketing person, et cetera. And we're all, again, just trying to make the best decisions with the information that we have. Um, yeah. And so that was really valuable, which then led me to leading our Whole Foods team that started to get me deeper and deeper into the natural products industry beyond what I lightly supported in my past roles. Right. And so, you know, frankly, I was really happy where I was. And uh, I would say I've always tried to keep just a little bit of room for a little bit of magic because life's too <laughs> short not to do that. Yeah. And uh, that magic showed up in the form of a dozen cousins. As an Ibrahim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course, everyone, I think a lot of people know who he is. And so I think a lot of people yeah. would use that word to describe him. And that well, he business. was a guest um, early on in after they launched. So I, I was planning on looking it up. But um, for those of you who are listening, definitely scroll, I guess, up on your um, episodes and find uh, Ibrahim. I definitely, it was during the pandemic because I was definitely at home um, recording. So sometime I believe in 2020. Um, so definitely go back and listen y'all because it's really good. Okay, I sorry. Believe you. No, no, yes. no, no, that's, that's great. I believe you. Um, and for all the reasons that you saw in wanting to invite him to your show, I saw obviously even more than that when I made the decision to jump over and join his company. And mm -hmm. by then, you know, that's the real like, hey, how committed are you to really getting down into the scrappy nature of a startup with all of that comes with it? And ultimately, it was just the brand that spoke to me as an individual, as a person, to my culture, to what I thought I could offer. Um, and it was an amazing product to begin with. So let's start with that. <laughs> um, yeah. And so with that, that was the first time I would say before City that I recognized that while I've always had the mindset of taking on challenging roles with frankly an end game thought that, okay, I want to eventually be a head of sales one day, like at a top, mm -hmm. you know, X size company and do that whole thing. Um, the reality became, hey, there might be potentially other paths for me than what, you know, the traditional way that people define success as that I've only known up until this point. And so right. came over, loved the role that I did there, loved the brand. And, and frankly, what I also appreciated is being able to do different activities. And I just mm -hmm. say activities because this is a bucket of things, yeah. um, you know, that I hadn't done in five, 10 years, but right. also that I technically should not, if I had stayed where I was, should not have been doing for another five to 10 years. Right. So it's just a really funky, fun place to be. Um, and so like, that's that's all like my career path and my journey up until this point. On the other side of things, you had City, where originally it was an operating business of City Ops. And there was a, a really big focus on helping companies and back of house and kind of working that angle. Yep. And from there, there became an apparent opportunity to also merge that with the food and beverage vertical of a family office. And that is essentially where City Capital was born. Yep. And so you have, you know, this combination of deep operators, but then you have capital with that. And that just became a winning formula for the company to pursue. Absolutely. And, you know, as you start to get into that work, the team recognized that aside from being, you know, a service partner and a growth equity investor, 
once you start to go through your diligence process and then supporting your portfolio companies with a full holistic approach to that process, you always find, you know, look to try to find ways to de-risk that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, from a de-risk standpoint, there became an apparent need for the team to start to get into more sales function, strategy function, direct-to-consumer experience, et cetera, because these were just areas areas of expertise no different than supply chain expertise that it was born from that the team felt there was an opportunity to, again, drive even more value for our portfolio companies and our clients. Yeah, I I think it's so smart. I mean, honestly, I'm sort of surprised that more funds or, you know, capital partners, I don't know how exactly to refer to them, don't do it because it's Mm -hmm. almost sales is notoriously the hardest function to hire for. It's Mm -hmm. notoriously the hardest function sort of to retain. Um, You know, everyone wants to hit the ball out of the park, but, you know, there's so much that goes into it that is beyond your control. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's just a tough one. And it it's sales. It's like, it's the number coming in. So, mm-hmm. you know, That's and like obviously the, the part thing. of the number going out too, but it's like <laughs> kind of the whole kit and caboodle. And, right. you know, I'm, I'm always sort of surprised that, you know, there isn't more sort of start, like support and strategy work and, rallying around the sales team from investors. Um, Yeah. You know, I mean, I think everyone sort of says some version of it, but I mean, I haven't seen a role like yours. um, Yeah. Which, which is really, really cool. Um, I think so too. Yeah. I think so too. And I think that, and again, you know, as I thought about how would I potentially redefine myself and what I'm potentially capable of and all the things that it was another moment where I challenged that notion of like, okay, this is certainly not some, this is not an opportunity that I was seeking out for myself or something, frankly, that was even in my purview of possibilities. But as it became known to me, um, I think that's where I had to really sit down and do some soul searching and, and decide, all right, if I were to suspend, you know, disbelief for just a moment, of like what that all means to me and what I want to do with my career, what would this look like? Like trying that on. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately where I landed of just the opportunity to not only broaden my own exposure of just this whole ecosystem and frankly, business at large. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it also allowed me to think through, well, how can I really maximize my input and my impact to this industry and to as many businesses as possible while I'm doing what I do? Yeah. Um, and so that's that's where I landed. And so far, it's been, there it's you been are. a really, really great experience. And I always laugh because now it's like, oh, it, it kind of happened a little serendipitously for me, obviously not without the proper thought going into my experiences being additive up, you know, up until this point. But I certainly wasn't doing it with this end game in mind. But no, as people yeah. ask me, you know, like, hey, how'd this happen? I'm like, oh, you know that thing, it takes so many years to be an overnight success. It's kind right. of that. <laughs> yeah. You know, before we get into sort of the, I mean, I think the, the nuts and bolts of like opportunities you're seeing for younger brands, headwinds that, you know, you're seeing probably among others. I want to spend a little just a couple more minutes on your experience at A Dozen Cousins before we go into the break. 
Yeah. And, you know, you, you, we, you know, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about, you know, there's strategy work and there's execution work. And sometimes it's hard to match those two. It's certainly hard for one person to be all things. I mean, what did you, I guess, what were some of the big learnings that you took from your time at big, big, big brands um, that you were able to apply getting a dozen cousins going? And I guess what were some of the um, surprises that you had there, um, both good and bad? And again, not specifically about that business, but just that that sort of switching from big to, you know, startup. Yeah. Um, I think I, as much as you can think that you're preparing for something, that's such a paradigm (laughs) shift. (laughs) You get in it and I kid you not, it's like just a human nature thing. And I've learned to give myself grace, but even with all the experience I had in big CPG, even with all of the different channels that I've touched and teams I've worked with, et cetera, When I came on board the first few weeks, I still had that unfortunate imposter syndrome that we all have at one point or another from just starting a new job because I was like, oh man, I know all these things, but how do I apply that here? Like, how do I make that make sense? Knowing that I don't have tools. Did you feel like you were specialized at that point and you couldn't necessarily go back to being a generalist or... Were you just like, how do I take this thing and make it fit something this size? I think it wasn't so much like the the specialist generalist thing. I think it's sometimes just the daunting task of where do I start? Right. And I know that's with anything where you're coming in. And while, you know, Ibrahim did an amazing job of building up his sales up until that point, like I was very impressed. Um, There were still just things that like, okay, I've always been used to having this because Mm -hmm. it was an established thing you know Mm -hmm. replace it replace thing with tool process person Mm -hmm. who does this etc and it's just a it's a fundamental difference of taking something that you inherit and improving it versus creating something from scratch and there was a little bit of both and some of which you know was just because that's what I do for a living for my career that was the whole reason why I was brought in right yeah and so that was the first thing that I had to get over is just myself. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. like I would lead into that, you know, what my friends affectionately call like my board, my personal board of directors to, right. you know, help me, help me get, get over my feels and like, you know, build me up a little bit. And that first, first person for me is my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I got over again, myself, I had to take a step back and get down to the, the brass tacks of it all, which is what information is necessary for me to make a decision? Like I've, I've seen so many businesses, I've done enough things to make my own decisions, even if in the past those decisions had to be thrown up the ladder to get approved, I could still make those decisions, right? Yeah. And so that was the first thing that I took from my big CPG days into this one, just as a foundational principle, because I didn't need to rewrite the playbook. Yes, there are different points that I'm starting from than where I was before, but it's still a lot of the same principles. And right. you know, with that, the, the other place that I started to, uh, to started with was just focusing on how do I best lead? Like that is something that I really value as a function, which is leadership, but also 
something that I always just try to continue to improve myself upon. Right. And once I did that, I realized it came down to really three big things I needed to keep in mind now that I was a smaller company, but didn't have to leave behind me, which is, first of all, what are your priorities? I would say in big companies, there can be too many priorities. And if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. Mm -hmm. And so if I could first sit down and decide what are my priorities, align them with Ibrahim or whomever, you know, insert CEO and founder here as if you're a salesperson out there. And then how do you first internally get everybody on the same page and growing in the same direction? But then from there, how do you take that message forward to your partners that are supporting you out there? Because in my world, I had broker partners. Mm-hmm. How do I get not only my main points of contact, but also those that are even another place removed who maybe they're out you know, selling into independence? How do I make sure that everyone knows very clearly, here's what we want to accomplish and why? Right. And then beyond that, recognizing what processes need to be in place. So this is the second thing, priorities, then process. What? And a quick question about yeah. priorities, because, you know, yeah. I like to get brass tacks here. For priorities sure. would be a velocity, a door count, a particular retailer, number of SKUs per retailer. Like, what? How, can you give me just a little bit more, like, nuance around how broad the priorities, how narrow the priorities, or maybe Mm -hmm. a good example of a couple. Yeah, absolutely. And so I would say even one step back from that is your focus going to be selling in new distribution, period, whether that be existing accounts with innovation or brand new accounts. What's your what's your goal here? So I got aligned with Ibrahim first on that, just from my standpoint and my own KPIs. Mm-hmm. But then beyond that, yes, setting with my team, meaning my retail team slash broker team, what are the things that I want to see us accomplish this year? So in in this particular, well, I'll, in a general case, I won't give away right, far. Right, right. In general cases. Here's my overall national door count that I'm trying to achieve. Here's how I see that breaking down by channel, whether that be natural channel, mass, et cetera. And then here's what that means to you. So case in point, if I know we're launching new innovation later this year, hey, team for Whole Foods, I really want to see us get in global placement for at least two out of the three three items. The third one, yes, we'd love to see it, but overall, this is what my go-get is for you. First of all, before we chase that, what are your reactions here? Not saying that I would change the number, but mm-hmm. I really want to make sure you get that buy-in. So that everyone's aligned. Yeah. So that everyone's aligned. And frankly, not everyone knows everything, right? So there could be a reason to challenge the number and it may be that the number doesn't change, but maybe I need to shore up my support to help them achieve that mm-hmm. because I recognize that there's a gap here. So that priority could be, again, distribution selling. It could be ensuring that we get a certain number of displays sold throughout the year, either while we have shippers or display activity that I can then turn around and measure through any data source that I might have access to. Um, And the key as well there is I would try to make sure that my priorities are focused on areas that I can in turn measure on the back end to make sure that they were hit or not. Um, But again, you know, in some cases it could also just simply be we need to land this account and help me understand where our challenges have been in the past because we've tried before and we haven't gotten it done. Or it's a brand new 
opportunity for us that we have waited to deprioritize just by way of needing more resources before right. we can fully support that. And what does that look like and how can I make sure that we get it across the finish line? Yep. Understood. And that leads to the second piece, which is the processes. So exactly. now that you have the priorities and the alignment around them, now what do we need to do to get these things rocking and rolling? Yes, both from just that side of things, but also internally. It, you know, Again, I didn't have a sales team supporting me internally at that time. And so in order to keep myself in, sane as well as just help <laughs> kind of automate some things to, to mm -hmm. prevent or reduce some decision fatigue, it's also what do I foresee as repeatable situations and actions and how can I put some process so that it can enable speed because right. that's a big difference between also big CPG and smaller. You don't have the, the luxury of ruminating and waiting for decisions that are have certain time frames and mm -hmm. certain people have to sign up. Like there's none of that. So how can you make the best decisions, but then put in ways for you to revisit those decisions and tinker with your process or just have certain rubrics behind, hey, if something hits this, then we're going to do it. If it doesn't, mm -hmm. then we're going to talk about it. And yep. that way you also enable whoever it is running alongside you to be able to have decision-making autonomy in the right ways Yep. after you've aligned on that process. Yep. Makes sense. And, and then three. the last thing, mm -hmm. last thing is just good old fashioned, like professionalism. I mean, I know that that seems like, okay, yeah, duh, but I mean, you know, some, some, <laughs> Some teams can play a little loosey-goosey with certain things and that's yeah. all good. You know, as you're building your culture, that's totally fine. And I'm not saying you have to be a robot or anything, but what I mean by that is when you're working with people who support you, when you're, especially when you're talking with customers and, and buyers in that particular case, for reasons that are outside of you, maybe, maybe because of you, but doubtful, hopefully outside mm -hmm. of you, they may already have preconceived notions about what they're going to be dealing with when they talk to a business that they perceive of your size. Mm -hmm. It could be that they already assume they're going to have problems with right. your supply chain or yep. this deck might be a little janky. Like mm -hmm. you never know. Yep. <laughs> and yep. So what I always found is like the more you can exceed expectations, the better. And that includes your communication. So again, recapping your meetings, being very professional about how you discuss things with them or how you support their partnership and, and yep. partnership goes two ways, but that over to how you present your, your opportunity with them, like how you pitch them and, and you can get run away with passion. I think that's amazing when it comes to the founder story, et cetera. But again, just showing the way you show up and I, it's a little je ne sais quoi as the French say, like yeah. how that like magic comes through, but it's important because Yep. You will always find that they're going to give you just a little bit more benefit of the doubt in other areas unbeknownst yep. to you because you've shown up well and they know you mean business. I think that's such a great point. We're going to head into a break in a minute, but it is something. And I think the professionalism word is a great one. I also think that there's a humility mm -hmm. that, you know, got a little bit lost when emerging brands were, um, there's a lot of celebrity-backed emerging brands mm -hmm. or influencer-backed emerging brands or, you know, 
um, famous people backed <laughs> emerging <laughs> brands and also brands that like may have done like gangbusters digitally. Um, and I hear a lot of stories about people being like shocked at how little all of that matters to a retail buyer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they really, they're like, that's great. I'm happy for you. Yay, TikTok. Now what? You know, right. and it's it's like you got to go in there with not the assumption of I'm going to grace you with this person showing up to do a cooking class for whoever. But like, here's how we're going to really work to not, you know, again, like, people hear me say this all the time. It's not about getting the slot. It's about the repeat, the repeat, the repeat. And exactly proving that to them um, and just just sort of going in, showing them that, you know, that that's your job, you yeah. know, that there's no that there's no ego, because I'm sure they are. They are very probably very bored of the ego um, <laughs> is, is my guess. But, you know, what do I know? Um, OK, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about tailwinds and headwinds and all sorts of fun things. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm back with Amber Byland, VP of Sales Strategy at City. Um, okay, so you mentioned something a little earlier. This is something that's been coming up for me, which I'd love some help with. And it's this channel and channel strategy. And I think, you know, speaking for myself, I heard the word channel a lot. This is before there was D2C, the, you know, this is like 2018, <laughs> 2019. Channel meant like natural channel, conventional channel, progressive conventional channel, mass, you know. Um, and it all felt a little bit like, well, really, you know, I feel like the consumer sort of like, they do a little bit of everything, you know, yep, yep. you know, there's a little bit of crossover. Does it really matter all that much Do you? How is it really, you know, defined? And what I am finding as a, as a fresh product, that is a premium product, isn't necessarily that the channels are that defined by the consumer, um, but they're defined by sort of the infrastructure around that channel. And mm -hmm. I guess what I mean exactly is like our product 
is amazing in the natural channel. Our velocities are, you know, way beyond benchmark, et cetera. And I would think that that would very easily segue into conventional, but the set size in conventional is at least half of mm -hmm. what it is in natural. And what they need to keep in that fresh set is likely double. And, you know, even just the buying structure for my set, you know, there are all these different buyers. And even if you get one region of a conventional retailer, those you get half of the sets of one region because of the size and because of the way that the distribution works. And it's actually really complicated. Um, <laughs> shocker. So I guess, you know, what I'd love to hear from you is, you know, when you're advising early stage brands, startup e brands, you know, are you very much like, let's start in natural, then we move to more progressive conventional? What are the what are the processes? How do you think about it? How would you explain it to someone like me who is just sort of like, oh, I see what everyone's <laughs> talking about? Yeah. So I would start by saying when you mentioned like the consumer shops everywhere and if I disclaimer, like I'm not like a consumer insights expert, I just tend to lean heavily on my lived experiences and yep. just the questions I ask myself. And so in that particular case, yes, the consumer does shop everywhere. Like the, the general consumer does shop everywhere, but it, it comes down to, in my opinion, what you expect and how that expectation is delivered to you. And, and that's like true about life. But in, when it comes to channel strategy Think about yourself, like when I go to a Whole Foods or an independent or a, a Walgreens or Walmart, I have very different expectations of what I'm going to see when I get there. And there's a reason why I've chosen to walk into that particular store that day, right? Or, or I decided that I wasn't walking into a store, I wanted to buy it online. Yep. So you automatically have different sets of criteria in your mind as a shopper of what you want out of this experience. And so if I don't mind waiting a long time, a little bit, oh, let's say a long time, a little, a long time, then I will go D to C and I don't really care how long it's going to take to get to me versus a prime experience where I might be willing to wait, but not too long, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And now so that's such a great way to, to look at it too, because that does take it out of natural conventional into Amazon as a channel, D to C as a channel, mm -hmm. right? You know, all the the e-com grocers or channels. And you're right, even though I might be getting the product from all those different places at different times, my expectation of the experience is different for each one. Exactly. That is money. Exactly. Money right there. Let's end the podcast. We're <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much, Amber. I'll be back next week with another so episode. I'm here, like, here to no, drop all the gems. Yeah, no, that was just amazing because because it kind of goes to then. I mean, I, not to kind of take it and run, but I mean, yeah. Then the shopper expectations morphs into everything mm -hmm. from what's on the shelf to exactly. the, the team to the infrastructure to the everything. Yeah. To the pricing okay. that you, I mean, so all of these retailers have their own KPIs, their own reasons for being. And when you walk into, I would tell you, whenever you walk into your next store, grocery store, 
whatever store for a moment, if you have the luxury of an extra couple of minutes in your shopping trip, like look around, look at what signs they have and what messages they're communicating to the shoppers from just the simple way that they have the store laid out and how they want to guide the experience. Like, and I don't want to go all the way down to Ikea, but like there's a method to even how mm-hmm. Ikea decides that they want to shepherd you through their entire store. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's messages and communication that's put out there. And so yes, it's a lot of the same shopper, but you're going to find different experiences and that's okay. And you're maybe willing to pay a premium because you can get everything in one stop shop, or maybe yep. you can't, but that's okay because you're looking for something that's very specialized or innovative, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And so that's just the first thing I'll set aside is like, when I start and think about channel strategy for a brand, I always want to understand who are you, who is your consumer and who are you trying to sell to and where are they? Like, where can you find them? And where can you find them in the most concentrated places if you're just starting out from coming from uh, offline or maybe pre-revenue over to your first foray into brick and mortar? Yep. And, you know, from there, that can vary because it'll, it'll really highly depend on the type of product that you have and like right. what, your, what your strategy is for just your product itself. But from there, I, I have a little... Excel basically that I've just put together that has all the channels that are are bucketed that I can think of that would apply in any given situation, not necessarily that you would go to all of them, but just to kind of start there. Right. And from there, once we've talked through the underlying purpose for your brand and who your key consumer is, we can sit down and say, okay, does it make sense for you to start in natural or is that some place that's either because your product is not best suited for that because of right. what your ingredients are or because you've already kind of gotten a little bit of your skis and you're in a few too many places to really now come back to that necessarily. Right. And so from there, I try to sit down and understand what are the risks and benefits to the brand by going to each of these channels. And again, I do the full exercise at once, not necessarily now that we're ready. Um, I just try to assess the whole thing because from there you can look through the opportunity itself and and understand what is the size of prize for my business if I were to go here from the initial period. So you're never going to, rarely is the time where you maximize your volume out the gates. Like you're going to have an initial size of prize that you need to account for in your financials once you go in. But then in turn, if you were to maximize your position for your brand in this this location or this channel, what would that look like? And I'm not talking like numbers. I'm talking just straight up big, small, like, again, just to dimensionalize the decision and add right. data points. Well, it's interesting because you very, very clearly go back to a very simple question for yourself, mm-hmm. as you mentioned at the top. You know, w- what do I need to know? What information is necessary for me to make a decision. Exactly. And it always goes back up to that, which is so cool. Okay. Yeah. And I then am the last, tracking. <laughs> <laughs> and then like the last piece that I, I have in my little rubric of questions or thoughts is around what are the barriers to entry? And then what is the complexity to manage this business? Because right. let's say, you know, you have a situation where you stack it all up and you're like, okay, initial size of prize is small, but the maximum size of prize for me is really big. 
Yep. The barrier to entry, though, is low, but it's super freaking hard yeah. to manage this because the, like, the route to market is yeah. super complex. I mean, and- I, I, you know, people know I'm very open on this show. Like, I will talk, Target is a classic example where I think a lot of emerging brands are really excited at the size of the prize mm-hmm. and at the awareness and at, at the, you know, but you know, they have very, very exacting rules about Mm -hmm. when you can deliver. And if you are an LTL company and you can't decide when exactly on Friday your truck gets to their warehouse, they ding you. And, you know, yeah, you don't know that stuff. I mean, we did not know that, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it's like, it's, there's so much, there's so much that goes into the rubric Mm -hmm. of that decision-making and, you know, then you might decide, okay, it's worth it because it's, you know, even if it dings the product margin and we have all these logistics issues and they're not happy with us for this reason and that reason, or it's still good enough as an awareness builder. But then if you know that it's an awareness builder, then you treat it like a different channel. Yep. hundred percent. And that's another thing. Like I I didn't get into the details of what the channel's purpose can serve you, but there's volume plays here. There's branding plays here. There's maybe, okay, I know this isn't going to do anything except give me a dabble to experiment. Like, I don't know what this means to me. And I have a broker partner who's an expert at this or a broker partner of mine who's an expert at this. And there's no big skin off my back to try it. It's a low cost barrier to entry from both the financials, but also the, like the time it's going to take me to get into this. So mm-hmm. let's try it. You can't have too many of those things, but I, I personally believe it's worth dabbling in, not only from a first mover advantage, just competitively, but also if you have like a really, um, I would say a, an interested buyer on the other side too, that's willing to partner with you to right. learn, then, you know, the other, only other risk would be obviously the inventory costs and all of that. I don't want to dismiss that, but Beyond those particular points, like there are opportunities to, to, again, dabble in some of those areas. I think when you have all this information, my key questions are always, again, can you support it with proper resourcing? You don't want to overextend yourself. Can you, and that's both on the people management side, but also like the affordability financially. Mm -hmm. And then the big piece that I see time and again, that some brands don't necessarily think through because there's a shiny opportunity with mm-hmm. insert big retailer A who wants to put you in a thousand or two thousand stores. And what happens is, yes, everybody works through all these channels. And in turn, they all look at each other like we think about our own brands and competitively, who am I competing with in this space? Just like retailers think about who they're competing with for that shopper to walk in the store. And so they want to have levels of differentiation too. And so you have to think through, do I in the future want to go if I'm in mass to natural or do I, if I'm in natural, want to potentially go to Walmart or another low cost offering, efficient offering like a club? Well, even if you're not ready today or not even next year or you know, however long in the future you'd want to think, you should still think about that at least a little bit up front because that has huge implications for how they see themselves and where you are and what they assume your brand is because you're there. But then like financially, the cost structure that you have internally on your P&L based off of the demands that they have on their own margins and cost offerings, that can get you into trouble like really, really fast. So Yeah. yeah, I've heard that too. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so now you are talking to all these different, you know, younger brands. Um, you have this whole sort of ecosystem, you know, 30,000 foot sort of, you know, perspective. You know, there's a lot going on um, in the industry right now. And I think a lot of founders and operators are feeling like a little bit like, okay, we get that everyone's nervous and we get Mm -hmm. that the world is, you know, nuts. Um, And also like our costs haven't gone down and it's not any less expensive for us to acquire consumers, but we're also not allowed to like, you know, we're having a harder time sort of raising money, but we're also not really in a position to like charge more because the consumer still has these demands. So I think people are feeling a little bit like it's coming at us from all directions. Um, And, you know, there's also a lot of, you know, there's opportunity in there. There's, you know, the great culling that people talk about, which I think is (laughs) kind of dark, but I guess, okay, I don't know. I guess that could be okay if you see that as an opportunity, which I just don't, I think it's kind of sad, but whatever, that's me. Um, I, I mean, what is your impression of what's happening? I would imagine that you do see headwinds, um, what are some that you're seeing, but what, I guess, you know, on the optimistic side are opportunities that you're seeing or things that are happening that are making it, you know, easier for brands to reach more people and build a loyal consumer base? Yeah, I think that's a very challenging question because it's, it's there's no one size fits all response yeah. in terms of like a, here's what you need to do, which is unfortunate right. because that's we part of why I got to tell us. Yeah. 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 Here's, here's how you, yeah. So I will say, start by saying I, I was very, very fortunate to have had some of the guidance when I started with a dozen cousins, um, both from Ibrahim and, and others to build even more so my network, um, which is something you don't really actually have to do a whole lot of when you work for a big company, because your network tends to be super, super insulated mm-hmm. um, just by the nature of, like the business itself. And when you don't have someone whose job it is to sell this thing for you or create this process, you find yourself no different than you and other founders meeting other sales professionals in your environment to just exchange notes. Um, And so I did that and I've maintained a lot of those relationships and also formed new ones. And so I've been very fortunate to, to be able to see some of these things and then just in general, keep up with some industry trends and knowledge. And I'll start with headwinds and just say, this is not anything obvious. It's just reaffirming, if you will, maybe what you're seeing, which is from, first of all, a sales standpoint, like D2C, it's crazy. I Last year when I joined City, D2C was still very much, at least from what I saw, <clears throat> excuse me, very much still a very healthy thing, albeit a little bit more and more challenged, but not to the degree of what I saw when I came back from maternity leave mm-hmm. um, after I went out. I went out in June, I came back in October and it was just like the bottom fell out in some of these cases. And I know during that period, I'm not naive to not remember, you know, from rate hikes from the Fed and the trickle down effect that that had, et cetera, and also supply chain related 
cost implications of just simple things like shipping because of the cost of gas. And, and so you all of a sudden have a, you know, a business situation where people as consumers have gotten very used to and very comfortable with free or reduced shipping at really quick time because of the Amazon effect. And in turn, if you don't have a business that has a compelling reason for why consumers want to purchase you online, right. then as, you know, as soon as they can find uh, something faster or cheaper in their local inter XYZ retailer, it becomes more and more challenging to maintain those subscribers or those shoppers. And then because of all of the changes between, you know, the, the costs of advertising or the mm-hmm. availability of advertising or privacy, all those things, it becomes more expensive to replace those people. And so, yep. you know, from a D2C standpoint, I see that as a challenge that is not necessarily going to go away. Now, the, the flip side of that is I am also seeing companies that recognize that now or may have recognized it earlier and are finding ways to diversify how they sell their product um, yes. in ways that don't make them so dependent on that, which I think is a great thing. Um, but the other thing that kind of fell out, <laughs> fell off, uh, if you will, is this, uh, like financial mm-hmm. runway. Sport. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and again, like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, I say it's crazy, but somehow my husband saw it coming and I'm like, man, you, you're actually pretty smart. You do know more than <laughs> <laughs> I give you credit for during our day-to-day decision-making. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> no, but I think that's another piece that again, became very challenged. You know, if you walk into your next raise and you're thinking, okay, this is about how much it costs to run my business. And this is how much I need to raise accordingly. And then, or I'd say, or you didn't want to take the risk of, a down round this year, and I'm not going to get too far into terms that I've transparently only learned <laughs> in right. this new role, but I have a, a quick study and I do understand some of Yeah, I mean, we all had, we all had, if, if we were raising money in 2020 and 2021, suffice to say, most of us had valuations that were very juicy, mm-hmm. even those of us who weren't valuation, like hungry. Um, yep. It was just the way it was. And so now we're in a position where for some of us, you know, what we projected our sales would be in 2022 weren't quite there. And if we're raising money now, the valuation is going to be quite different from a multiple perspective or even the way that they measure it um, as to what it was before. And if that's less than the last one, then that doesn't feel good. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's, so my, those... <laughs> that's my valuation yeah. in 20 seconds. Yeah. Um, which I also had to learn in the last couple of years. So, it's, yeah. uh, you know, it is interesting, though, that mm-hmm. it all seems to have kind of happened at once. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I always quote Miguel. I think I quote Miguel Leal almost every podcast, but he's, you know, I don't know if you know him, Amber, but he's like, one of my advisors, he's the founder of Somos. He used to be CMO at Kind Bar in Cholula. Mm-hmm. And I just think he's so freaking smart. And he always says, it's like an avocado. Like, it's like not ripe, not ripe, not ripe. And then it's like too ripe. Yes. You know, like, it's just like, <laughs> it's very funny. It's like super slow and then all fast. Um, and there's like this very, this little window where it's just like perfect. Um, right. But right. that's kind of how it feels. Yeah, it's like 
I, I think it's a very good exercise for every company to look at every dollar that they're spending and look at every, you know, retailer that they're in and make sure that like the margin is right and the dollars are well spent. And also to go from grow, grow, grow to yes. now you have to be profitable because now you're not valuable if you're mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. um, that's the part I think that's like really stressing people out and I they're confused, you know, like, okay, but none of the other things have changed really. Right. Like, except that now there's the great Mirren shortage of 2022 mm -hmm. and things like that. Like, I think it's the abruptness feeling, um, to founders. It's, it's challenging. Um, but anyway, you're right about the headwinds. Um, what are some tailwinds that you're seeing? <laughs> so I think there's one thing that while it's not new, it's supremely important. And I say this from the point of view of having worked in a large, many large organizations in the past that don't have this. And that's the ability to pivot. And I know that sounds a little heady and you're like, no, well, I think depending great. on, you know, mm -hmm. your financial status, like these are real these are real things that people are considering whenever they're making these decisions on their business and their livelihood. And so I don't mean to make that light, but mm -hmm. the key difference here is you have the ability to make some hard choices and then own those choices and do them quickly to yeah. cull whatever the bleeding is that you need to cull versus your competitors. If you're in a space with a, you know, a, a category that has national players that doesn't happen for them. And the reality is there's a lot of minutia that goes into some of those decisions and changes that they cannot do. And so how do you lean into that? And I'm not going to sit here and tell you, here's all the ways you do. But I feel like as I've talked to different brands, they have in their mind's eye, like the break if it, upon emergency type of a thing. And yeah. I, I hope, you know, hopefully not too many are in that position. But if you need to, you can do that. Oh yeah, and that's at least a bit of the beauty of I would say flipping that on the head of the opportunity that you can you can take advantage of. Um, and I think as you think about those, it goes back to my professionalism comment earlier, which is being communicative about that to your key partners on the retailer side of things will go a long way because they know that not everything is going to be perfect. And yeah, it may result in some challenging conversations, but it's a lot more challenging to have to deal with sudden departures and sudden really right. drastic changes versus having those conversations early, um, yep. earlier, I would say. And then the other piece too is, this is more tactical, but I am seeing some national retailers, um, some really, really big national retailers that are starting to lean in to younger brands, especially mm -hmm. those that have a really good track record of strong DTC performance, because they're, as I mentioned before, doing what they can to differentiate within the space as well. And right. that is an, a really cool strategy to drive store traffic, it, or sorry, in-store traffic from yeah. a younger generation by pulling in some of these brands that are hot online and you know they get a little street cred and also incremental sales because your brand and your collection of brands, and I say your collection, the collection of brands you would be in mm -hmm. the same company of, bring those those right. shoppers in and keep them there. And so that's nothing to be trifled with because there is a financial implication of building the proper levels of inventory and having yeah. 
capital up front to do that. Um, so that's super important. But if you can afford it, that's also a really cool thing that I'm starting to see bubble up as well. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, you know, I used to be like, you know, you've heard me. I'm like, they're at TikTok. But the reality mm-hmm. is also like it is balanced, right? They they want to know. It's like everyone there. Everyone's trying to de-risk, right? So if they're yep. putting something on the shelf and they're, we can prove to them that there are people looking for us, whether it's visits to the website or the store locator or our TikTok page or, you know, Pinterest or whatever it is, it just de-risks it a little bit, yep. right? Like we're bringing the right people in. We're keeping it fresh for you. Um do you think just gut, just gut thought, do you think that retailers kind of um, go on a pendulum from sort of um, innovation to just margin, 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 and, you know, cleaning things up? Like, do you feel like they, they have you seen them sort of swing back and forth in a way? Because I feel like a lot of these things they swing, you know, and you kind of catch them in a cycle a little bit. Yeah. I think, again, this is a gut reaction. Yeah. I think like most, they want both Mm -hmm. (laughs) always as much as they can. And the bigger you are, the more you try to push for both. Now I have seen though, that they, depending on how bad they want you, there are concessions that are made on the margin front if you are hot enough to basically right. boil down to drive more units for them right. and ultimately, you know, more economies of scale and more total dollars. Then there's a, they'll hit you up. <laughs> they'll hit you up next year when it comes time for the next reset to say, hey, you know, in order mm-hmm. to expand you or keep you, we want more margin. So it just may be a bill that you pay later. It will certainly right. come. Um, but I think, again, it depends on, where they sit in terms of their competition. So I'll, I'll speak directly on some of these, like for Walmart, for example, I, if you walk into a Walmart store today, you'll see that there, there tends to be these days more and more innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really cool thing. And I, I would have to imagine that they're again, trying to attract a certain consumer going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. And so I'm not going to say that they are compressing their margins, but I got to imagine right. their focus is primarily on innovation and, the reality, too, is as you're a buyer, you have so many different ways and levers that you can pull to make your total number work. No different right. than when you think about your customers as a brand that you're going after. Not every re- not every margin that you have is created the same. So right. you may have certain retailers and channels where you make more money on than others. And that comes down to then your mix of how those work harmoniously to your final number. Right. And you have, as a buyer different brands that you leverage that are loss leaders mm-hmm. and a certain brand that you leverage because you want to be showing that you have differentiated right. you know, variety. And yeah, so and then you can play with that, the cool kids a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's no different. No, that makes total sense. Okay. I had a few other questions that I wanted to get to, but we kind of covered them. What is important, though, is that we finish up with you telling me about bold. What What is bold? And tell me why you're such a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> so BOLD is an acronym for Black Organization for Leadership at Danone. This is an organization that I helped co-found. Um, unfortunately, the 
February Black History Month of 2020, right before George Floyd was murdered. And mm. that's the unfortunate part of that timing. And what we saw at the outset um, of forming this organization was just a real way for us to support and help really, I guess, support, I don't want to like try to make something sound differently, but really support the Black employees at Danone in an environment where while we were supported in general, there's a different thing when it comes to a sense of community and mm -hmm. a little bit of structure to help make sure that we're set up for success and that we have a place to really be transparent and plain amongst each other on how we can continue to improve in this really special environment that we are within CPG. Yeah. Um, and that's super important given the fact that there's just an underrepresentation of brands on the shelf that are owned and operated by people who look like those who purchase them. Right. And the buying power of people of color within the natural products industry alone, but in particular within Danone, as we felt we had an opportunity as a big player within that space to own that in-house first and then, mm -hmm. you know, look at the way we run our businesses and how we support our brands from an authentic place. And so that is what we we ultimately decided to form around. That's awesome. Um, and, and since then, you know, I've joined other groups that are outside of Danone, namely uh, Project Potluck, which mm -hmm. has a very similar type of a mission. It's just yep. a bit broader because it affects affects many more and supports right. many more companies outside of the one. Um, so yeah, super excited Amazing. about that. Yes, very cool. Um, and and clearly, you know, much needed uh, in in our industry. I think we need much more organization around all diversity and inclusion. Agreed. I don't know that anyone would disagree with that. <laughs> um, so Amber, this has been so incredibly helpful. Um, thank you so much. You know, we're all just trying to figure stuff out, but you know, these kinds of guidelines and frameworks and just ways of thinking like are actually incredibly helpful. You know, telling us that our trade spend should be X percent isn't as as helpful. So this is this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And Armin, happy new year. We're back at it. I went a little over. I'm going to work on it. It's a resolution, but you know, <laughs> Amber and I are both, um, well, you would set it, so I'm not saying it for you, but like, I also, you know, I like to explain and I like to give context. So, exactly. you know, Same. exactly. Same. I don't want to say long winded, but maybe, <laughs> you know, just, I like to give context. Um, if you like so, to get it, you like to give it. And I, I think don't, that is I don't so see the other way. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Um, that's very true. And listeners, you know, I, I just really appreciate you and I'm here to help. We are all in this together and, um, we, um, you know, we're going to make it, we're going to make it work. It's all going to be good. It's 2023 and it's off to a good start. Sun is shining. So, um, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.